Thank you very much and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packer. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of apostolic tradition, but also in this part of the, this series that we're doing, we'll be taking a look at how we can pray with scripture, not only be informed mentally, but also enter into scripture to come to know our Lord in prayer. That's going to be key. Now, we'd love to have you become part of the show by adding your questions or comments. You can do so during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in to 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, that number will not work, but this one will. It is country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us your questions or comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, today we'll begin a new series of hopefully very honest and hopefully insightful discussions that are meant to bring consolation to those who have been abused or scandalized by the wickedness of the priests and bishops. We'll explore the Gospels to show how Christ anticipated the sins of the clergy and how his parables teach us about good and evil coexisting in the church. We'll see that the solution to these issues lies in the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and of our authentic conversion to faith in Jesus. We'll be using my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that at EWTN's religious catalog, just go to EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 81098. And, of course, if you have missed any past scripture and tradition shows, you can go and watch them on our website, EWTN.com, and also on our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash EWTN. So... Let us now take a look at the uh, beginning of my book, the first chapter, which is how the church will always contain sinners. This should not be taken for granted. There are a lot of people who want to start off with an assumption that the church is a society of the already perfect. That's not reality. And it's not the reality our Lord gave us, that the sinners will be in it. Now, the goal is not to say, well, there's sinners in the church, therefore it's okay to be a sinner. It's not okay to be a sinner. That's part of being in the church. 
to accept that our sin is not good. It's an evil, objectively and subjectively. So we have to seek to stop sinning, and we don't seek to justify our sins by changing ideologies and other ways of talking or blaming everybody else, blaming our parents, our society, or whatever. No, no, no. We confront our own sinfulness and repent of that sinfulness with true hope that the grace of Jesus Christ will work within us to change us, to become saints. That's our goal, to be saints. Uh, especially they don't let the other kind in heaven. But our Lord can't find the sinless in the world. He calls sinners, and he knows it. He's not naive. This is one of the very important things. Our Lord was not naive. Before the public ministry, he had been 30 years living among human beings. So he knows them very well. He knows that human beings are fallen sinners. This is the reality. And when he called disciples, he said, oh, this one is perfect. No, he knew that they were sinners beforehand. And we'll see throughout the ministry, our Lord upbraided the apostles for their pride, their selfishness, their ignorance, their lack of faith, all of these things. And he pointed out their sins, not just to make them feel bad, but to call them to repent. This is one of the key things. And that's important in our society, which tries to get people to not point out sin as sin. There was a daytime talk show where, you know, one of the little catechetical points, it would oftentimes have very immoral behavior on stage and people telling about immorality and the audience would be yelling and screaming at them and all this. And then the whole thing was, don't judge anybody, just learn to accept and it'll all be okay. Actually, that's bologna sausage. And it's, that's not the way things are. No, we're called to repent of bad behavior and sin and come to Christ so we can enter the kingdom of God. Furthermore, our Lord Jesus actually taught his disciples and the crowds that sin and goodness coexist in the world. There will be virtue and vice. There will be good people and there will be bad people living in the world. And this is something that we see especially in our Lord's very beautiful parables. The parable of the weeds sown among the wheat, which is where I get the title for this book. That wheat was sown in the field, but the weeds or the tares were sown among them. We'll see the parable about the good and the bad fish that were all collected into a net. 
and the wedding feast where one of the guests comes without proper clothing for a wedding, doesn't have a wedding garment. And that the parables about the final judgment, because Christ will come to give a judgment on all of us. And we have to be alert that there is no individual who will be exempt from the righteous judgment of God. That's why we approach the judgment seat with fear and trembling, as we should. And we see there that uh, he talks about the good steward and the wicked steward who is unfaithful. He'll talk about the foolish virgins and the wise virgins with their lamps. He'll talk about the industrial servants who invest their talents and increase them versus the wicked, lazy servant. And then the sheep and the goats who either serve Christ by helping the hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, and imprisoned, or who re reject Christ and fail to serve him by failing to help those people. Now, we're well aware that priests and bishops have caused scandal in the church. This is not new. It began with the apostles. It continued throughout history. It was very typically priests and bishops that led the great heresies. Arius was a priest. Sabellius, who taught that Jesus is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just God the Son incarnate, but he's all three persons. That was a heresy. Arius, who denied that Jesus is God, went to the opposite heresy. These are priests. And at one point, 85% of the bishops in the eastern part of the church were Arian heretics, and a number in the west were as well. And we can go through the history of the church and see that there are sinners among the clergy. And this is one of the realities that all of us have to address. And it continues in our own day where bishops and priests have acted immorally and some of them deny the teachings of Christ. Sometimes the denial of Christ's teachings. Some who deny, for instance, doctrines like transubstantiation. There was a deacon that first denied it, Berengarius. But till this day, and I can remember hearing from uh, various people in the seminary, they didn't believe in transubstantiation. Or to deny the moral teaching of the church about the purity and holiness of matrimony and the necessity of matrimony as the place in which sexuality is brought out in a holy form of life, a sacrament that doesn't apply to other kinds of relationships outside of that of a man and a woman. So we have bishops and priests still, you know, messing around with doctrine that's been part of the church. We have to be aware of this. This was our Lord's teaching. So. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 18 and begin there. When our Lord uh, 
responds to the disciples who asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know, and frankly, they were all hoping they, that Jesus would say, oh, of course, you 12 are. That's what they're looking, that's why they asked him the question. But when he answers, he says in Matthew 18, verse 3 and 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not the guys who go around trying to say, well, who's the greatest? Me, right? No, no. It's the, the humble who don't seek that, who know their smallness and know their humility. They're the ones who are greatest. And an innocent attitude of a child is what our Lord wants, for someone to be great in heaven. By implication, of course, anyone who tries to be arrogant and seek prominence, who seeks out to be the greatest, are going to end up among the least. This is a very important thing. So our Lord warns his very ambitious disciples about two antithetical choices. We see here in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, this is not the last time our Lord will give such warnings. He will later on say to Judas Iscariot, it would be better if you'd never been born than to betray the Son of Man. So he warns the disciples that when you come to such a humble and innocent young person and you accept them, that you are definitely to be receiving them and accepting them for the sake of their own goodness. That's, when you do that, it is the same as accepting Jesus. And again, this is going to be consistent that later on in the same gospel, chapter 25, verses 31 and following, we'll see that whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. So accepting these humble children is to accept Christ. By implication, though, rejecting them, as we see so many people do, when they promote abortion, they are rejecting. When, they, when people engage in human trafficking of children and of other vulnerable people, they are rejecting 
not only those people as authentic human beings, but they are rejecting Jesus Christ because they're doing to the least of his brethren and he counts it as done to him. So we have to make that choice. Are we going to accept the little ones and Jesus or reject them? And secondly, if you cause them to uh, sin, then it's better to have a millstone. Now, I've, I've actually uh, been in Jerusalem and I found a millstone set. It was about uh, 65, 70 pounds. And that was for hand mills. And I could not swim with one of those around my neck. But that's not the kind of millstone our Lord is talking about. He was talking about the kind that took a donkey or an ox to, to pull. They would put a large pole in the center and then they would go in circle to grind the, the grain and separate the wheat from the chaff. This could be half a ton or a ton. Nobody can swim with that around their neck. And that would be better. That would be better. And that's why our Lord goes on in verse 7 to speak a woe. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. This makes it very clear that our Lord does not approve of this. And we see also in verse 8 a warning to each of us because it's not for us to go to say, woe to that sinner out there. We have to look at ourselves. This is what he's asking us to do. Examine our own consciences. And he says in verses, Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you, it is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And of course, this repeats what he had said back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30, about, you know, removing anything that would cause you to sin from your life. But it's especially directed here to those who would cause the innocent to sin and to bring scandal to the church. And this is a very important principle that he wants us to examine but to examine our own hearts. And he's not really looking for us to go amputating different limbs from our body. He is calling for us to change our hearts so that from the depths of our hearts, we remove the sources of temptation that would make us become the sources of scandal. That is the task at hand for each of us. Well, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in just a moment. So let's uh, get, uh, please do come back and 
we'll discuss the next part of this. Welcome back. I'd like to address the two parables. Both of these are found only in the Gospel of St. Matthew. The others didn't have copies of this. And they are about the coexistence of good people and bad people in the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at them. They're both found in Matthew 13, which is St. Matthew's collection of parables. And in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 27, we read, Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? So that's the first part of this parable. And it's the servants who are the first ones to notice that our Lord, uh, uh, that the weeds had grown up. And the, the, not the owner, because they were out in, among the, the fields. And when the owner hears the report, he immediately understands that an enemy did this. He knew what he had done. So he said in verse 28, an enemy has done this. Now the serpents want to respond and say, then do you want us to go and gather them? That is the weeds. The tares. And uh, they, they figure, well, let's just cut them all down. And that's not what the master says. It's not his solution. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." So this is going to be uh, the uh, way that he wants to do it. And why does he do it that way? Because he doesn't want the removal of the weeds to also destroy the good wheat. That's part of this reality. And this is a very important parable for him because he goes on to explain privately to his disciples what it means. Uh, down a few verses in uh, chapter 13, verse 37, uh, when he takes them in private, 
He says, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's his title for himself, a title from the book of Daniel chapter 7. So he, Jesus is the son of man. He sowed good seed. The field is the world. And the good seed means the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep, and gnash their teeth. This is a very serious statement of what the judgment is about. And you know, a lot of times people will point out evil in the world and say, oh, I, I think these people, the devil is causing this, and they're correct. But at times they have to be careful that they realize the devil is tempting people to do this. It's not that he takes possession of them. That's rarely the case. It might happen. But most of the time when someone is possessed, they act so destructively, usually self-destructively, that it's clear that nobody is willing to find them. But when you see people who are willing to lie and to steal and to cheat and to kill in order to get what they want. Then you can go back to our Lord's teaching that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Whenever somebody's using deception, it's not that they're possessed by Satan necessarily, I doubt it, but they are tempted to falsehood by Satan, and they speak it. And he's also identified in John chapter 8, same passage, as a murderer. So when we see people use killing as a solution to the world's problems, whether it be the Nazis trying to get racial purity, whether it be the communists trying to get economic equity, or whether it be people who say these babies can interfere with your future life and career, or they can destroy the planet or pollute the environment or whatever other argument. When you use killing as a way to solve a problem, you have fallen for a temptation by Satan. And that doesn't mean you're, you're possessed. So that's the kind of thing that our Lord is saying. And because it is falling for a temptation, the person who goes along with that temptation is responsible and will be held responsible for it in their judgment and they will end up in the eternal fire. That's our Lord's teaching.
Not a pleasant one. But you have to keep in mind, it's not the apostles that talk about hell very often. St. Jude and 2 Peter do. Uh, St. Paul never mentions hell. But the one, and St. John in the book of Revelation, but the one who speaks of it the most often by far is Jesus Christ, especially in the Sermon on the Mount and in his parables. So this is something to keep very clearly in mind. And on the other hand, he says that the righteous will shine like the sun. In Matthew 13, verse, verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the promise he makes. He gets that image of shining like the sun from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, where he also speaks of the final judgment. And, and the prophet Daniel says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And that's at the end of time. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, the Hebrew term there for the damned is that they will become eternal nightmares. Their eternal existence in hell will be that of a nightmare. That is the choice. And our Lord says to us, let the one who has ears hear. This is something that's repeated not only here, uh, but also in the book of Revelation. If you are able to hear this and pay attention, then pay attention. Okay? The second parable, again, it's only in Matthew, and talks about wickedness and goodness side by side, is also in Matthew 13, verses 47 to 48, where it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into vessels, but threw away the bad. So what does, what does he mean by bad? The Greek word sapra is a, a term that's used for the bad trees versus the good trees that bear fruit. And in this case with fish, what makes them bad? I mean, I like fish. Well, Jewish people are not allowed to eat fish unless they have scales and fins. They have to have scales and fins. So they cannot eat catfish because they don't have scales. And they can't eat eels. That's, that's not allowed either. And this is something that uh, was prohibited in Leviticus 11, verses 9 to 11, and Deuteronomy 14, verses 9 to 10. So this is something that the fishermen around there, um, you know, would know. 
in, Deut in Leviticus 11, verse 9, it says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales, of the swarming creatures of the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters, is an abomination to you. And it shall remain an abomination to you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall have an abomination. Why? Because the kind of fish that don't have scales are bottom feeders. That's what the issue is. And they didn't trust that kind of fish. Same thing with uh, mollusks. So they can't eat shrimp or lobster or clams or oysters and all that. So all that's forbidden to them. So that's what would be thrown out. And he uses that as a way to illustrate the judgment so that the fishermen are compared to the angels who separate the wicked from the righteous. And the wicked are going to be punished in a furnace of fire. Uh, Jesus taught that many, many times uh, in, um, uh, in Matthew uh, and elsewhere. And he also drew upon a lot of Old Testament passages to understand their fiery punishment, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire came down upon them. Psalm, Psalm 11, that coals of fire and brimstone and scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. Many other such passages. And this kind of fiery torment in hell, um, you know, was what he talked about. Now, I know that it's not popular, and a lot of modern people don't like it, including people in the church. Um, you know, this was something that, uh, you know, a lot of people in the contemporary church don't like to hear. But we have to remember that our Lord is saying this both to the crowds and to his disciples. This is something that applies to everybody. And he is making it clear that good and evil will exist in the church and it will exist until the final judgment. But he will not condone the sin. He will not let it slide. And he makes it absolutely clear that even though sin and virtue exist together in the church until the end of time, we have to be aware that he will call all of us to account. And he will make us answer for how we respond to him. Do we respond in faith and virtue? Or do we respond in an evil way? Do we use the means of God and his kingdom? Or do we follow Satan and the kingdom of darkness? And whichever choice we make, we are answerable. And that it goes from the Pope to the simplest believer. Everybody is called to account to God. So he says this to us now so that we can Give an accounting of ourselves now. Repent of the sins now 
and seek the virtues as we go forward until we see Christ face to face. Okay? All right. Well, we'll stop there and we'll start off with um, some other parables next week. But I'd like to take some of your questions at this point. We have Pat in Dallas calling. Pat, what can we do for you? Hi, Father. Hi. I'm calling because um, I wanted to ask, who did the apostles think Jesus was? Mm-hmm. Did they think he was like a Moses? I mean, they've been with him. They saw him perform all these miracles. And how am I supposed to pray with that? Yeah. Pat, this is a wonderful thing that you're asking, how, especially the part, how do I pray with that? The, our Lord had himself to ask. I'd like you to, to pray with it. I'd like you to go to Matthew 16, right around verse 18 or so. Our Lord asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And notice how they have all sorts of opinions. And he even has to ask them, who do you say I am? He had to ask them that and evoke from them. And, you know, the group of them don't give an answer. I think the lack of an answer from the group is because they were kind of confused. It's Peter who speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And our Lord Jesus says, this did not come from you. <laughs> He'd been with Peter for a while. You know, you didn't come up with that. The Father inspired it in him and designated him thereby as the leader of the church, which goes on after that. But they seemed to vacillate. They were not clear. And it's going to take a number of events, including the transfiguration and especially the death and resurrection before we see one of the apostles finally say, my Lord and my God. But it was the doubter who came to that faith. So we are with them. And, and Pat, I want you to understand, the apostles are the ones who reported their own confusion to the evangelists. We only know about their confusion from them. In their humility, they let us know we're like them and they're like us. So that's how we can pray with it. I'm going to take a question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Peachtree City, Georgia, Father. Well, good to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank nice you. to be here. And what can we do for you? Well, your ti- the title of your book is The Wheat and Tares, and I don't know the word tares. Could you give us a little background about yeah, that word? It's an older English word for weeds, okay? And it's in Greek, it's referring to uh, the, uh, the, well, the English word refers to a specific Greek word, Zizania. Zizania are a type of weed that looks exactly like wheat when it comes out of the ground. You cannot tell the difference. And it's not until they grow up and the heads sprout 
then you can see, oh, this is weeds. And the uh, word that was used in some of the older uh, translations, like the Dewey Reams and such, was tares, because they had such weeds as well. And so they were familiar with them. So I just used that older word. I'm an old guy, you know, it's <laughs> they use no terms, but it's a type of weed, weed that looks like wheat, but is not. Okay, so it's pseudo, and that's that's a, it's a great image for sinners uh, in the church because they look like they belong, but they don't. Sort of like a mule in a barn full of thoroughbred horses. Close, but you get up close, you see, he's no thoroughbred, <laughs> and I'm not going to race him. Uh, so <laughs> that, that would be a good example and fits a lot of people. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes with more of your questions, emails, and comments, so please stay with us. of a very special Holy Week service. It's called the Rite of the Lamp, a Maronite Penitential and Healing Liturgy for Holy Wednesday. We will broadcast this live from St. Elias Maronite Church right here in Birmingham, Alabama. That's the parish where I typically help out uh, on the weekends. And we'd love to have you join that. Uh, it's a series of prayers and also uh, especially prayer for healing and repentance. Uh, it's a liturgy most folks in the Western church don't know about. And uh, we'd love to have you join us uh, in praying with us at that liturgy. Okay? It's not a it's not a divine liturgy. It's not the uh, Corbono Mass, uh, but it is something... Um, that, you know, is a special prayer service. So please join us. All right, we have a caller, Catherine, in California. What can we do for you? Answer a question for me, Father, please. Sure. I uh, came into the church at 7, and I'm 84 this summer, and I've been a lay minister for years, and I'd like to know where do priests who leave the church get buried and have families where do they where do they worship? What happens to them? Please okay. answer. Okay, now that's going to vary. Um, you know, there are a good number of priests who have left the priesthood and gotten permission to be laicized, and they enter the lay state, 
and they may not celebrate the sacraments, though in the case of those priests who leave in good standing, they may anoint someone who is dying in an emergency, an emergency. So that's one, that's the one sacrament they're allowed to, to do in an emergency. Otherwise, they may not exercise the priestly ministry in any way because they still have the priestly character, but they've been brought to the lay state. They can go to a parish and they are allowed to worship at any Catholic parish because they've done it in a proper way. If they have simply left, they just walk away, um, they, they would have to get their laicization regularized before they could receive the sacraments. They could come to Catholic Mass, but they could not receive the sacraments until they got their state uh, regularized. There's a process for that called laicization, and they would have to do that. And if they have attempted marriage, they would have to have their marriage convalidated. It's not considered valid because they were, were priests who had taken vows or promises not to marry. So it wouldn't be, by, by law, wouldn't be a valid marriage. So they would have to uh, get that convalidated. Uh, and again, there are processes they can go through in that. Um, but they are able to come to Mass. Um, now, a lot of them don't. And I know that in some situations, it's, um, you know, not so easy for them to come back to a parish where they had once served. A number of such priests and of the pastors of those same parishes feel much more comfortable if they go to another parish where they're not as well known. That's just easier in terms of social relations. Uh, they could, uh, but that, you, know, you want to have that transition as easy as possible. So that's what they would have to do. Uh, and they, if they're in that situation, they need to talk to good canon lawyers about the, the law part of it. Okay? All right. And we have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I am from uh, the Chicago area. Okay. And, uh, good to have you here. Yeah, it's nice to be here. But uh, my, my question is, and this is something that uh, troubles me somewhat, but when you speak about the end of the age or a age, a age, that's plural. Mm -hmm. When you speak about the end of the time, that's singular. Right. And I'm wondering, uh, I have problems with, that, with those terms like that and trying sure. to figure out my... Sure. Why the difference? Yes. The difference comes from this, for this reason. In the Latin, the end of the ages is the normal expression. It's, an, it's idiomatic. They would speak of the end of the ages, the secula, and the word from which we get the word secular. Okay? 
And a sekela or age also means world. Because in Latin, as in English, in Old English, war ruled meant time or the world as a place. It, it had both meanings in both Latin and in uh, English and also in Greek, in the Ion. Uh, so in these different languages, the word for the age and the word for world are the same word. And in Latin, it's plural, and they translate it as ages. But in English, it's singular. So they use the end of the world. It means the same thing, just two different languages and the idiomatic ways of saying that in two different languages. That's all. Okay? Well, I have an email here from Eleanor in Ohio. Father Mitch, at 80 years of age, I'm familiar with Latin in the Mass. The Mass, the church is talking about evangelization. My five children, ages 47 to 60, aren't into the language. My nine grandchildren, ages 13 to 34, are not interested in Latin or familiar with the language. This doesn't seem to be the way to keep the younger generation interested in the Mass. What can we do to keep these young people faithful to their Catholic upbringing, Eleanor in Ohio? Well, first of all, Eleanor, the way that Latin has been presented is that in Vatican II, it says that the commons parts of Mass the Gloria, the Holy, 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 the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, the Creed, these parts, and of course the, the Lord have mercy in Greek, those parts have, Latin is kept as pride of place. And we use that on EWTN as a way so that people from around the world from many different languages, can join in those commons parts. And I remember watching my friend's mom in Jerusalem. They're watching the Mass in Jerusalem. And uh, she didn't know any English. Our son did, but, you know, he, she didn't. So, but when it came to the Latin prayers, she was right there because she knew all those by heart. So this is a way for an international audience. But then the second thing is to have Latin uh, in the extraordinary form. This was something that Pope Benedict uh, had given. And in fact, a lot of young people liked it. And when you, you go to the congregations, it was filled with lots of young people. I myself think that the option is a good option. I think the majority of our folks want the vernacular, but a minority uh, would like Latin. I'm not particularly interested in the Latin Mass. I think it's too modern for me. I want Aramaic. So I go to the Maronite liturgy. But I want the option. Uh, I would be in favor of the option as one way to, for people to worship. They find that satisfying. So that but, uh, wouldn't be the way to, and, uh, to evangelize. We have to teach them who Jesus Christ is because neither English nor Latin saves us. No language saves us. 
Only Jesus does. So we need to have a good sense of that. Also, I want to take an email from Becky. This in Virginia Beach. Dear Father Mitch, I've heard different explanations of the cry of our Lord, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. A little bit of Aramaic. And I wonder about this separation of Jesus and the Father. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he said, I and the Father are one. I do nothing without my Father. Uh, and he is always with me. He always hears me. How can it be that the father forsakes his son? Did Jesus know this was to happen when he uh, could converse with the father on Mount Tabor and the prophets? Where did his soul go? To what place did his spirit descend? Separation of father, Jesus and the father, God is confusing to me. Real quickly, first, this is not about the separation of the father and the son. This is the opening line of Psalm 22. That's the psalm that predicts, they have pierced my hands and feet. They have numbered all my bones and they divided up my garments among them. He's citing that to show that it was prophesied that he would be nailed to the cross, scourged, and his clothes divided. Secondly, he's not divided from the Father, but he is also distinct from the Father. And St. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, that his soul went to the prison to preach to all the souls who had died before his crucifixion. So that's what's going on there. All right, I have to go. Lord bless you all and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can bring you this and all of our special Holy Week programming only because the network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless.